You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that over the next few moments that you would come, that you would speak to us, and that you would reveal more of your heart for us, Lord, that you would paint a picture and cast a vision of Jesus, who is the greatest friend to sinners. Trust that you'll do this some more. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. (coughs) I have this cough that has been hanging on and will not go away, so I apologize uh, for that. It's it's been around since uh, uh, a few months ago, it seems like, when I came back from, uh, uh, when we were in Vegas, and came back, and it just has not gone away. So, to bear with me at times. <clears throat> this text uh, in front of us, um, I said last week um, that this text in front of us today uh, kind of feels like the, uh, the ending uh, credits um, at the end of a movie, right? Like last week's text kind of felt like the last action sequence in a really good movie, um, but this week kind of feels like the credits. Um, I think that the full weight of the Apostle Paul's life, right, is the 30 years of ministry, planting multiple churches, proclaiming the gospel um, at home and abroad, all his 13 letters. This is his final letter. This is his final words that he pens um, before... He uh, is beheaded for his faith, right? He gets martyred at the very end 
of this letter. And so I, I think, again, when, when you come to a, a text like this where it feels like it's a, a list of names, it feels like that list of credits at the end of a movie, and it doesn't, I think oftentimes the, the tendency is to kind of rush past it. You know, at the end of a movie, the credits come up, and you get up, and you try to get home. And uh, oftentimes that's the way we treat uh, lists of names in the Bible. Now, I would admit this list of names is quite a bit different than some of the genealogies that you might read because those ones literally are just lists of names. There are nuggets in this text that are helpful, but oftentimes we still treat a list like this with a passing glance, uh, with a sense that there's not really a whole lot here that would be very transformative or applicable or helpful. And I, I would say that this list of credits is uh, far from unhelpful. I think very far from worthless, you might say. I think worth our time to spend uh, digging through it. If you look at the text, the first thing that I notice that the Apostle Paul says is he says, hey, drop everything and come visit me. Right? He says, drop everything and come visit me. Now, I'm uh, certain that we all kind of know what it feels like to walk through a season of life that's really scary, Right? A season of life that is very difficult or very fearful. I don't think any of us have probably faced the fear of execution, much like the Apostle Paul is facing here. But I do think that every one of us has probably experienced a season of life that's been very difficult, and we don't want to be alone in those moments. We want to be surrounded by those whom we love, those who love us. I think this is why the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in verses 9-10, through 10, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. So the sense that you get here when you read that is like these three guys just deserted him and left him. In fact, that's the word that is used in the text. Deserted me. And what Paul is saying is, hey, Timothy, I want you to drop everything and come visit me really, really soon. When you think about this man named Demas, um, Paul says, hey, he deserted me uh, because he was in love with this present world, right? Most scholars, most commentators would say that they don't think that Demas had necessarily abandoned his faith. It was more like um, he was uh, in love with maybe a momentary pleasure of this world. Uh, primarily, most likely, safety. Because you've got to remember the Apostle Paul is on death row, right? To be associated with the Apostle Paul on death row in that day and age puts you in the same place as the Apostle Paul. So it's highly possible that Demas, to escape any possible persecution, wanted to preserve his life and left the Apostle Paul there. Uh, The other two men that Paul mentions here is uh, Titus and Cretans, right? The the language of the text suggests that these men left and went to a specific place. And so it's very possible that when those two men left, they just sensed a ministry calling to go somewhere else. Either way, the, the way the Apostle Paul speaks of them, it seems as though they left with his blessing, so to speak. That Paul would have looked at Demas and said, okay, I get it, you're afraid, go ahead. I get it, you two guys, you sense a calling to ministry elsewhere, go right ahead and go. At the end of the day, all that we know for sure is that Paul feels very alone. And the absence of those men, the memories of those men, causes him to just simply ask Timothy, hey, would you please drop everything and get here quick? Because I feel alone. Second thing, 
you notice in the text as you work your way through it is, he says, hey, bring another friend with you when you come, right? Verses 11 and 12. Again, I think it's very uh, normal. I think it's a very human thing to want your friends to be with you during the most difficult seasons of your life. I don't know what y'all have been walking through in this most recent season. I don't know what kinds of things you're facing that bring a sense of fear um, or uncertainty uh, to you. But I, I know I know that we all have a deep sense that we want somebody to walk through that with us. It's not fun to be alone. So it's a very normal and very, very human thing to want people, your friends, to be with you at your side, walking through the darkness with you. Especially in this case, as you think about the Apostle Paul, you could say that he's, he's basically on his deathbed, right? Death is right around the corner. It's certain and he knows it. I don't think Paul had any sense that he was going to get out of this alive, that God was going to uh, step in somehow and they were going to drop the charges and let him walk out of prison. I think he knew that this was it. He knew that this was what was going to happen. And in this moment, the Apostle Paul is not entirely alone. Because it does say that Luke alone is with me. Now, you may not know this, but Luke is basically the Apostle Paul's ghostwriter. Okay, so Luke was one of the apostles, for sure. He's a great physician. You can see Apostle Paul that refers to him that way. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. And then he also writes the book of Acts, which we're going to be going into, right? At the beginning of the year. Um, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts act like a two-part book. You got the Gospel of Luke, where um, Luke sets out to teach us about Jesus, all the things that Jesus did when he was on this earth. And then the book of Acts, he's teaching us all of what Jesus does through the power of the Spirit through the church. Luke is the Apostle Paul's ghostwriter. All of the Apostle Paul's letters were most likely written by Luke as Paul dictated those. And in fact, in the book of Acts, you'll, as you follow along through that study, if you were to go read it on your own, you'll find a point in the book of Acts where the language of it shifts from the first person to the second person. And it also becomes more of a we versus an I. And at that point is when Luke and the Apostle Paul meet, and that's where the language shifts. That's where Luke begins to write for the Apostle Paul. So we know that Luke is there. Paul does say that. I can imagine that Luke, uh, being a doctor, uh, as he was, um, and even the way that Luke writes is very analytical, um, very particular, doesn't miss details, pays attention very closely. I can imagine that Luke, in, in those moments, also probably offered lots of physical um, help to the Apostle Paul as he comes to the end of his life. But he does say here in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. But then, then he gives this, what I would say is a really startling request. He says, hey, get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now when you track this and you're thinking about it and you're looking at it, Tychicus is probably going to be the one who's going to deliver this letter to Timothy in Ephesus. Okay, you tracking with me? But he says, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. Well, that's where Timothy's at. So I think what's happening here is he's going to hand this letter to Tychicus. 
Tychicus is going to take that letter to Ephesus. And then he's going to most likely be the one who then relieves young Timothy of his pastoral responsibilities so that Timothy can then make the trip to visit Paul. But the startling request is when Paul asks for Timothy to bring Mark with him. Even though Mark had abandoned the Apostle Paul many years earlier in Acts 13. There was a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And it was all over Mark. Because Mark had abandoned them in ministry. He was fearful, most likely, of what lied ahead. And he abandoned him. And, and, and uh, Barnabas wanted to forgive uh, young Mark and say, no, it's okay, we're going to forgive him. Let's take him with us on this next leg of the trip. And Paul uh, very sharply disputed that with Barnabas. And so he and Barnabas parted ways and went two different directions. Barnabas took Mark and went one direction. And uh, Paul took a few other men and went a different direction. And at some point, as Paul went that opposite direction, guess who he met? Young Timothy. And so God, in his providence, I think, oversaw all of this unfolding in their relationship. But it's a startling request to say, hey, would you grab Mark and bring him with you? Obviously, at some point, we don't have the record of it, but obviously at some point, the two of them had resolved their differences. They had extended forgiveness to one another, and they had experienced the beauty of a restored relationship. And I don't know about you, but for me, and maybe it's just part of the way that I'm wired, but I think some of the scariest, maybe most painful things I face in my journey as I follow Jesus, is the pain of broken relationships. Relationships can be very, very painful. Especially the ones that you look back on and you go, I wish that that relationship was restored. And it causes some pain. It can cause some hope, too, in hoping that one day that relationship may be reconciled and restored. And these Final moments of the Apostle Paul's life, what he wants is to be surrounded by his friends. And one of those friends, the one that was a surprise for me, is Mark. And I think some of it revolves around the fact that Mark would be a solid reminder of the kind of eternal relational restoration that only the gospel can produce. What would be more encouraging than that? To, to have known that you've walked for years in great distance in a relationship that was broken or severed, but then to have the beauty of that relationship be restored because of the gospel, and then in your final moments of life, be able to have that person in the room with you as you near your death, as a visual reminder that what's about to happen is you're about to step into the arms of your Savior who did everything needed to restore the relationship between you and your Father in heaven for all of eternity. What a, what a picture, what a beautiful picture to me of the gospel. And I think that's what's driving the Apostle Paul to ask Timothy to bring another friend with you. Third thing uh, that I notice Paul says is he says, hey, bring my treasured belongings with you. Bring my treasured belongings with you. Oftentimes, when someone is on their deathbed, uh, friends and family will, will bring some of their treasured belongings to comfort them in their final moments. I remember it's been eight, nine years ago that my, now that my mom died, and I remember one of her treasured items was her Amplified Bible. 
um, was, was what she wanted. And I was just talking to my sister about that Bible this last week because she was looking for it. And I said, I think I have it down in my office, but I'm too afraid to go down there because I saw a snake last week. So I need somebody else to get the Bible. Yeah. So note, I don't want snakes at my bedside when I'm dying. <laughs> but my mom, <coughs> my mom, she, she wanted her Amplified Bible. Uh, she, she wanted her grandchildren there to rub her feet and rub lotion on her hands and feet and to, to brush her hair. Um, she wanted some of her horse statues, and those were the things that would bring her comfort. She, she wanted a couple of our daughters who sing, uh, to sing worship songs to her, that uh, would bring her comfort. So it's not uncommon at all. In fact, it's very common that when someone is nearing the end of their life, they ask for some of those treasured belongings and some of their closest relationships, their friends and family, to be at their side. And there's nothing different here. The Apostle Paul asked Timothy to bring some of his treasured items. He, verse 13, he says, Hey, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. These treasured belongings, I think, are what Paul believes is going to bring comfort to him in his final days in prison. And so you have to ask the question, though, like it's nice, it's all emotional and feelings-oriented right here, but, but what's the significance of the items that he asks for? I know the significance of the horses, the horse statues that my mom asked for. I know the significance of the songs that she wanted sang. I know the significance of the Bible that she wanted at her bedside. What's the significance of these treasured belongings? Well, if you look at the cloak, the cloak kind of makes sense because further down the text we read that winter is coming, right? It's going to get cold. The Apostle Paul is not in a typical jail cell. He's in a hole in the ground with a grate on top. Uh, that's the kind of prison he's in, dark and cold, um, exposed to the elements. So he wants his cloak you know, because it's about to get cold there. So there's really nothing earth-shattering about that, right? Uh, but what about the books and the parchments? has to be something to those, right? What is the significance of the books and the parchments? I don't think... If the Apostle Paul is asking for his favorite set of novels uh, so that he can numb himself to uh, his circumstances. I think what Paul is asking for, literally, and I, most scholars that I read agree with this, that what he's asking for is his biblical commentaries. He's asking for his stack of commentaries um, when he asks for the books. The parchments... Again, most scholars would say that those parchments are most likely a combination of the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the Apostle Paul's previous letters, and most likely other letters from other apostles that we find in the New Testament, that he had those collected. And my guess is um, that what Paul wants to do with those gifts is he wants to actually gift them, those treasures, he wants to gift them to Luke, Timothy, and Mark, so that they can then continue to write the rest of the New Testament. That, to me, if that's all true, is absolutely fascinating to me. That God would use um, all of these instances to bring those pieces together so that you and I might have His Word uh, right in front of us. Now, regardless of the nature or the significance of those treasured items, um, Paul is indicating that these items are going to bring him comfort in his final days, right? And really, these items are none other than, than just a comfortable, warm coat, Bible study materials, and the Bible that he had. That's what he's asking 
more. The Apostle Paul is a man of the word. Right up until the moment that he comes face to face with the word who had become flesh as he walks into heaven to the shouts of celebration from those whom he had martyred in his earlier days. That whole picture of restoration. Him being a man of the word in that way. Asking for that in his final moments for comfort. And maybe even so, when you think about the Apostle Paul being a man of mission, a man who wants to see the mission continue to go forward, maybe he's going to sit down with those friends when they show up and he's going to say things like, hey, Luke, you need to make sure you finish writing Acts. Maybe he's going to look at Mark and and Timothy. Maybe he's going to say, here, you guys need to take these and ensure that they're protected. And there's churches that need to be planted over here. I I can't imagine what those final moments in that meeting would have been like if they made it. There's definitely disagreement as to whether they made it or did not. So we don't don't have a lot of historical record. There's some that think he did, some that think they didn't. I could just imagine what those moments would have been like had they made it. The fourth thing the Apostle Paul says here is beware of imposters. Right? Beware of imposters. When you think about this, there are three treasured items on their way to the Apostle Paul, right? Three treasured items. You got Timothy, you got Mark, and you basically got the written word and some Bible study materials. And Paul wants all of them to arrive safely. And so he begins to think about, as they're on their journey to me, what kind of barriers might there be for them? And he remembers, oh yeah, on their way here, they're going to run into somebody. They're going to cross paths with somebody, and they need to be warned about him. The dude's name is Alexander the coppersmith. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Short and sweet, Alexander the coppersmith is simply an imposter, right? Now, the original language of the text implies that what Alexander did is he actually drew close to the Apostle Paul so he could betray him to the authorities. And it's interesting, if you do uh, more study on, on that name, Alexander the coppersmith, you'll find that he does pop up in other biblical books in the New Testament that Paul wrote. And at times, see, when he makes a list of, Here, here's all the people that are with me, Alexander the coppersmith is one of them. And it seems as though he was a good friend at one point, much like Demas at the beginning who took off to save his own skin. Alexander the coppersmith is quite different. He actually drew close so that he could betray the Apostle Paul. And Paul's friends need to be aware of this. They need to avoid Alexander. And they need to do that so that they don't end up on death row too, because this is what imposters do. When you think about the, the work or the outcome or the results of an imposter, An imposter spreads pain, spreads the stench of death through their actions, through their words, through their betrayal of you. They're like vicious wolves, really. And that's how the scriptures regard imposters. Vicious wolves, devouring lions. These are people who will, I think, just tear your heart to shreds as you attempt to serve them. Paul's saying, hey, avoid imposters at all costs. And the reason why is so that the community of the word may remain unharmed. 
The other thing that the Apostle Paul points to is that there is a judgment day ahead for men and women who are like Alexander the coppersmith. There's a judgment day ahead for those who harm the community of the word with their vicious acts of betrayal. Basically says they're going to get theirs. The Lord will repay them according to their deeds. And speaking of vicious acts of betrayal, as Paul's writing this, I think his thinking kind of shifts. And he remembers how at one point in his life, he was absolutely alone with vicious lions and nobody except the Lord came to his side. He writes about this in verses 16 through 18. And the essence of what he says in these verses, this portion of the text, is he's basically saying, hey, the Lord will rescue me. The Apostle Paul was a man who looked forward to heaven. And I think he looked forward to heaven with the kind of rock-solid assurance that only a man who had been rescued by God could possess. Think about it. When he says in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom, when he says that, he follows it with, a, with what I think is like a victorious proclamation, right? That proclamation is this. He says, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in the midst of that, he's actually making a statement. He says, the Lord will rescue me. He says all of that because that's been his experience in the past. And you think about it, oftentimes when we walk through difficulty, when the going gets tough for us, I think there is a tendency at times to look back in our past, and I think all we can see sometimes is just our failures, our sin, our our mistakes, instead of God's redeeming and rescuing hand at work in our broken lives. You think about the Apostle Paul's life. And if you've had an opportunity to read all of his work, all of his scriptures, I don't think the Apostle Paul ever necessarily lost sight of the imperfections and the sin in his life, his brokenness. But his imperfections and his failures, I believe, caused him to hold on even tighter to the message, the message of our crucified, risen, returning Savior, who's promised eternity for broken sinners like all of us. That's what you read when you read Romans 7 and 8 back to back. Is a man who clearly gets that he's broken and sinful. But yet he looks forward to this truth that what lies ahead for me in eternity is complete freedom. No longer condemned because of the work of Christ at that cross. The picture I get when I think about Paul sitting in this prison cell holding on to his trust in Jesus and believing the Lord will rescue me. The image I get is that Jesus never let go of Paul. And Paul never let go of Jesus. And because Jesus would never let go of Paul, Paul would always be able to cling to Jesus. Paul's full experience, what he's talking about here in this portion of the text, His full experience of God rescuing him when he was all alone on trial in the city of Rome. Uh, You can find that in Acts 21 through 28. Uh, But here in verses 16 through 17, he just gives us a summary. 
Gives us this summary of that event. Here's what he says. says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I love this next phrase. He says, may it not be charged against them. On the one hand, with Alexander the coppersmith, that dude's going to get what he deserves. At my defense, though, nobody came. Everybody left. Everybody was gone. May that not be held against them. So I love the Apostle Paul's heart. He does not walk through these seasons with growing bitterness inside of him. He moves on and he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It's amazing because the Apostle Paul's entire focus of his life was that the message of the gospel might go out to those who are lost so that they might become saved and become part of the community of the word in the local church. That's the focus of the Apostle Paul's life. And he knew uh, without a shadow of a doubt that that God would strengthen him and, and continue to rescue him despite his own failures because this is exactly what God always does. God is our redeeming and rescuing God. That's who he is. That's who he reveals himself to be from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. I am your redeeming and rescuing God. I will bring you safely into my eternal kingdom that I am establishing and expanding. That's the image of of who our God is all the way through the Bible. Paul knew that, and it brought him great strength. When the ground is shaking beneath your feet for whatever reason. You can be certain of this. God will rescue those who belong to Him. I have to say too that at this portion of the study, for me, um, I don't know if it's the same for you or not, but at, at this portion of the study as I try to wrap my mind around some of the imagery that Paul is using, some of the things that he's saying. I was reminded of some of the heroes of the Old Testament, right? Uh, the image of being rescued from a lion's mouth. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of Daniel in the lion's den, doesn't it? The image of Jesus. He says that Jesus stood with me. That image of Jesus personally standing with Paul um, reminds me of maybe the fourth man who looked like a son of the gods in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do, but I will say that's what it reminds me of. And if I put myself in Paul's shoes, it would seem easy to rely on those historical stories of Not when these men were so heroic and so faithful, but when God was so heroic and so faithful to his people to rescue and to redeem as he reveals himself as that God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in that story, if you've never read it, and they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, who's basically telling them, you need to bow down and worship this idol, this image of me, and they're like, "Hmm, nope. Not happening. Not doing it. Specific words that they say. He says, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver. Caption, rescue. 
us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. And when Shad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they say that, it's, it's not just a, a recognition that God will step in right now and rescue us. It's just simply that no, I serve the king of eternity. So it's like, even if you do kill me right now, I know where I'm headed. God will rescue me the moment I leave this earth and walk into heaven. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in the midst of that, they were in that fire. If you've ever read the story, in fact, the guys that throw them into the fire, it's so hot, those guys get burned and they die. But the three dudes that get thrown in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't die. And the king is standing out there. Nebuchadnezzar is looking into this fiery furnace and it blows his mind because there's a fourth man in the furnace standing with him that looked like a son of the gods. God reveals himself. The rescuing, redeeming God never leaves your side. Think about the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That story is kind of fascinating because Daniel really, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been come, become elevated in leadership. At some point, Daniel was kind of like the right-hand man to King Darius. Um, like they were friends. And even as you read the story of Daniel, you get that sense that King Darius really loved Daniel. And there were some other leaders in Darius's regime who were jealous of Daniel, and they conned the king into making this edict that nobody should worship or pray to anybody else other than you. And Darius, a prideful man, fell for it. And uh, next thing you know, Daniel, praying in his home, in front of his windows, wide open, directly defying his friend the king. And the king's hands were tied. It was a trap that was set by these other guys, right? So the, the penalty was you get thrown in the lion's den, you get eaten alive. And there's even, a, in the whole story, there, there's a portion of the text where just as Darius is speaking to Daniel, there, there's just a, there's a sense in which he's saying, Daniel, I'm really hoping that your God shows up and rescues you. But I have to be a man of my word because I did speak this edict into place. And so Daniel's basically like, I get it. I'll be fine. Sure enough, it's thrown into the lion's den with all those lions. And the text tells us that God came and shut the mouths of the lions. And the king, Darius, was, I think he was like awake all night long. That is the way that I read the story. Just fretting over the fact that he had just thrown his friend to his death. Early in the morning, Darius comes out to the lion's den and basically knocks on the door. Daniel, are you okay? Did the lions eat you? From inside, Daniel's like, yeah, I'm fine. Just chilling. Comfortable lions got my head on them. <laughs> That's probably the VeggieTales version. <laughs> King Darius, upon learning that God had shut the mouths of the lions and that Daniel was unharmed, makes a proclamation. Listen to what King Darius says. He says, God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He 
who has saved Daniel from the mouth of the lions. Isn't that powerful? Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel had experienced this power of God as their rescuer, so too the Apostle Paul in these moments. He's experienced God's unique and rescuing presence as he sits in prison. And the Lord Jesus had showed up in the flesh. Acts 23.11 makes it clear. And Jesus speaks to him in person. He says, take courage. Can you imagine that moment? Being in prison and having Jesus show up to you and speak to you? Come to you to be with you in your darkest moments as you're facing death, as you're getting ready to go on trial? He says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. How how assuring would that be to know that Jesus was standing and walking with you through the most difficult seasons of your life, the loneliest times of your life, the darkest times of your life? I believe the Apostle Paul knows He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the same rescuing God who had shown himself to be absolutely faithful time and time and time again in the past is going to no doubt show up and welcome him into the presence of his Father in heaven. In those moments, in the complete, his full and final rescue of Paul for all of eternity. And that's why Paul, I think, can confidently proclaim God will rescue me. Last thing you see in the text, Paul closes things up speaking of the gracious presence of the living God. It's the last thing the Apostle Paul says in this letter. It's basically a final greeting to and from many of his other friends. If anything really reads like the final credits in a movie, this definitely reads that way. A bunch of names that we kind of feel are a little bit unintelligible. We have no clue who most of them are, right? Though you can do some word studies and find out who they are, and there are some things you can learn from it. Um, The core of what Paul does here in closing is points us right back to the everlasting, gracious presence of the living God. He says, greet Prisca, whom some would believe is Priscilla. from another portion of text, and it's very possible the name is so similar. Um, Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Miletus, do, do your best to come before winter. Parentheses, not just because it's going to get cold, but because the trade routes of travel to get there close. So he wouldn't get there until the following spring if he didn't leave quickly and get there before winter. That's all that is. Eubulus, strange name, sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Last thing he says, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. 
In those final words, Paul just simply cannot escape the gracious presence of our living God. That's what I think has taken place. It's his final words. In short, what Paul knows is that he is about to enter into the gracious presence of his redeeming and rescuing God. And I think what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to remind Timothy and every other friend of his that they must continue living in that same vein. Living in the gracious presence of the living God until they join him in eternity. Because it is this, the gracious presence of the living God who redeems and rescues sinners, who is the most faithful friend until the very end. That's the essence, I think, of what Paul is saying throughout these final words. The last thing I want to say to you guys here as we bring this to a close and kind of wrap it up is you can't study this uh, part of the text um, very deeply, I guess, without um, landing on Psalm 22. Um, and some of you might be like, why, why is that? Um, well, Psalm 22 is the passage that was on Jesus' lips uh, when he died on the cross. Um, it's also, uh, most scholars believe, it is the passage that was most likely on the Apostle Paul's heart and mind as he drew near to the end of his life here on this earth. So Psalm 22, um, and I think it's, it's actually probably on our website, somebody preached it, I'm sure, um, over the last few years. So you might look on our website and go back and find that sermon, um, because that'll give you a, a kind of a, a detailed um, exposition of it. Um, but for the sake of time here, uh, Psalm 22 is known as a messianic psalm. And I know that sounds like a big word, a messianic psalm. What does that mean? simply means that that psalm explicitly points us to Jesus as our Messiah, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Rescuer. Right? And in reading this final portion of the text, every scholar I read, every commentary I read, um, makes mention of Psalm 22 and how Paul's language, the words that he uses in his final words here, are directly connected to Psalm 22. And in fact, in so many ways that, again, there's no, nowhere near enough time to make all the connections. Um, uh, there are themes in Psalm 22 as well as in this text we've just studied. All these themes of betrayal and loneliness and death and unwavering trust in God as eternal deliverer, rescuer, king. Right? All that is present in, in both. So I would encourage you to read it or find that sermon, listen to it. For me, as I looked at it, the connection that was the most compelling for me is the final words of Psalm 22. It's on the screen for you. Verses 30 and 31 from Psalm 22. David says, It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. And it's those four final words for me. And they are the final words of Psalm 22. And for me, they connect with Paul's final words in 2 Timothy. Because those final four words remind us that God has done it. He has finished it. It is finished. You might remember. 
That's the message that David foresaw being proclaimed long into the future. You could almost say <coughs> David foresaw long into the future the Apostle Paul proclaiming the message of Jesus. That at the cross, it is finished. That that's the future generations that would be proclaiming that message. And I think the Apostle Paul would have hung on those words. He has done it. It is finished. In his heart and in his mind as he faced his final moments here on earth, he would have known that God's rescuing work in his life was about to be finished once and for all. And what he wanted was he wanted his friends to come visit, right? But at the same time, I think he also knew that the greatest friend of, of, of sinners, Jesus, had never left his side. And he was about to walk into the presence of the best friend any human could ever have. Because Jesus is the best friend of sinners who remains until the very end. Now the reality here as Paul closes this and as we close our time in our study of this book is that Paul was fully confident that Jesus was his friend until the very end. He was fully confident that Jesus was not only his friend until the very end, but he was confident, absolutely rock-solid confident, assured that Jesus had finished the work of rescuing him at the cross of Calvary. Jesus had finished that work, and he, he destroyed the power and the presence and the penalty of Satan, sin, death. He did that at the cross and the empty tomb. And that promise is not just for, for Paul and for the heroes in the Old Testament, for you and, and for I. It's for us to trust in that as we walk out our days on this earth. The truth of this passage is that Jesus would be the friend who would greet the Apostle Paul in heaven where their friendship would never, ever know any kind of end. My hope and my prayer is that you too would know that same unique presence of a living God in a relationship with Jesus, where you have surrendered your life to Him, where you have confessed your sins, where you've proclaimed your trust and your faith in His work at the cross, and then from that point forward, you would live as though Jesus walks by your side in every situation you walk in and out of. And that He would hold tightly to you, and you would hold tightly to Him till the very end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, as we close, uh, that you would come and minister to us uh, in these final moments. Take something that was preached uh, from your word and, uh, and help us. Help us to find some space at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. Help us to hang on to the hope of heaven. We trust you to do just that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Would you stand with me? You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.